The Sumerian creation epic begins with the primordial mother goddess named Namu, who many suggest represents the creative force behind the entire universe itself. She was the goddess Sea, who gives birth to the first actual gods. These are An and Ki, the sky and the earth, who are generally interpreted as being one being, Anki, though some interpretations describe that they began as two. At any rate, An and Ki, or Anki, gives birth to a child named Enlil, the god of the air. Enlil cleaves An and Ki in two, implying they were singular, separating the heavens and the earth. Finally, Namu and An create Enki, who is the god of water and also the god of wisdom, mischief, crafts, and creation. This pantheon then goes on to create a number of other gods and goddesses, such as Utu and Nana, the sun and moon god, and so on. And many of these created gods seem to describe different aspects of the world. While there are a number of parables involving interactions between these deities, a great deal of the Sumerian creation epic revolves around these three characters, An, Enlil, and Enki, who form sort of their own trinity in a sense. In this story, eventually Namu has an idea and speaks with Enki, having him create human beings to assist the gods in their work. And other, perhaps even more common tellings of the story, it was Enlil's idea, who told Namu about it, who then gave Enki the task. This, in essence, is the basic idea of the original Sumerian creation epic. Due to the passing along of stories over time and that many tablets are damaged, a lot of the details of this creation story we looked at remains a mystery. Now, you might be thinking, gee, Patch, I'm not sure I see the parallel between what you just shared and the Bible. Are you sure that these are related? And the answer is absolutely. However, in order to see how we get from this to this, we have to look at the stories in the middle and see how this chain develops from here to here. The middle of the story between these two is found in the Babylonian creation epic, of which a far more complete telling exists today. In this story, it relates Namu with the mother goddess named Tiamat and Enlil with a being named Marduk. However, as you will soon see, there are significant differences in the way that these goddesses are portrayed in the literature. Things are about to get very interesting. The Babylonian epic of creation begins with the primordial god and goddess, Apsu and Tiamat. These two are described as the god of freshwater and the goddess of saltwater, which is commonly interpreted to be not as physical water, but primordial substance in the early universe. However, Apsu is sometimes seen as the freshwater aquifers underneath Mesopotamia, and Tiamat being the saltwater sea. In the story, Apsu also has a vizier, whose name is Mumu. Together, Apsu and Tiamat mingle their waters, and they create two deities, Lamu and Lahamu. As they are growing, two more deities are created, Anshar and Kishar, who excelled beyond the first two. Anshar and Kishar form Anu, who is quite powerful himself, who then begets Ea. Both Anu and Ea are the same beings as An and Enki from the previous story. All of these newly created children make a ton of noise and problems, surging back and forth and disturbing Tiamat's belly. Even Apsu believes their behavior is loathsome. Apsu declares that he's going to destroy these children and end their annoying ways. Tiamat says, no, don't do that. 
be patient with our children and is very upset that Apsu wants to kill them. Mumu, on the other hand, is very supportive and encouraging of Apsu's plan. These children find out about Apsu's intent. With fear of imminent death, the children go to one of their own, the resourceful Ia, who performs some magic so that Apsu drops into an eternal sleep, subduing all of his power and effectively killing him. Ia then chains Mumu up as a prisoner and takes the throne of Apsu. He names his new king's chamber after Apsu, and it is here that he and his wife Damkina, who is often related with Ki from the original Sumerian story, give birth to a new god called Marduk. Marduk is a very interesting character, for it says that he was very manly with remarkable divinity. It also says that he had four eyes and four ears, and that he breathed fire when he moved his lips. Howdy. Anu gives Marduk something called the Four Winds as well, and by the power of the Four Winds, a wave of intention is sent towards Tiamat to cause her upset and frustration. Soon after this, Tiamat is told by the gods that when her husband was slain, she did nothing, and now she too will be punished. The result of this is that Tiamat summons a small army of 11 monsters and dragons around her, who all had very curious names. There was Venomous Snake, the Big Weathered Beast, Exalted Serpent, Furious Snake, the Hairy One, Great Dragon, Mad Lion, Scorpion Man, Violent Storms, Fish Man, and Bull Man. In addition to these 11, there was also her consort, Kingu, who becomes the lead general of her army. Tiamat gives him something called the Tablet of Destinies, which is an object that confers upon the bearer the supreme authority as the ruler of the universe. Kingu advises that she destroy her children, who seem to be clearly plotting against her. And in her sorrow for the loss of her husband and anger towards her children, she then becomes the antagonist in the story. In many interpretations of the tablets, Tiamat herself transforms into a great sea dragon. Ia speaks with Anshar and asks for advice. And Anshar basically says, Ia, you started it. You killed her husband and you made her really mad. Take responsibility for your actions. Talk to her. Try to help her calm down. Ia responds by explaining that he didn't feel like he had much of a choice because all of them would be destroyed otherwise. But he takes Anshar's advice. Ia then attempts to speak with Tiamat, but retreats quickly, for her strength is too mighty and she is filled with dread, unable to hear Ia's plea. Anshar then sends Anu to do the same. Anu does what his father asks, but finds Tiamat's magic too much for him and retreats as well. It is soon realized that only one person can save the day. And so Ia summons Marduk to his chambers and asks him to go and see Anshar. When Marduk sees Anshar, Marduk understands what is needed of him and agrees to put an end to Tiamat's rampage. But in exchange, he asks that he be named the king of the gods when it is done. Anshar sends his vizier, whose name is Gaga, off to inform Lamu and Lahamu of this development who summon a council of gods, and over beer and pastries they discuss and agree to Marduk's request. And so Marduk prepares for war. Marduk arms himself with a number of weapons, a net, a bow with some arrows, a club, and in addition to his four winds, also creates three more, the evil wind, the dust storm, and the tempest. He also brings with him the storm flood, his mightiest weapon, and he rode a chariot of irresistible storm, which were pulled by four steeds, the destroyer, the merciless, the trampler, 
and the fleet. As he approached Tiamat, Marduk observed Kingu and his shining tablet of destinies. As Marduk looked, his determination fell and he faltered. Many of his divine aides who were marching at his side saw the warrior and their vision went dim. How could they even stand a chance? Summoning his courage, Marduk hurls the storm flood at Tiamat and yells something to the effect of, Tiamat, why are you aggressive and arrogant and strive to provoke battle? Against all of the gods, you have stirred up and established trouble. Deploy your troops, secure your weapons. You and I will take our stand and do battle. When Tiamat heard this, she went insane. A great celestial battle commenced. When Marduk gets close enough to Tiamat, he first traps her in his net. Then he shoots the evil wind at her face, who opens her mouth to swallow it, but she is unable to, and it holds her mouth open. He then shoots an arrow into her belly, which cuts through her insides and extinguishes her life. Marduk then binds up her small army, who are now cowering in fear, and retrieves the Tablet of Destinies from Kingu. Then he returns to Tiamat, and with his merciless club, crushes her head, and then cuts her in two. Half of her body is used to create the earth, and the other half is used to create the heavens. Following this, Marduk is crowned the king of the gods. He positions 500 gods on the earth and 300 in the heavens, and the city of Babylon is created in his honor, and the other gods praise him. Marduk conceives a desire to accomplish clever things, and he announces that using divine blood, he will create a new being called man, who will continue the work of the gods so that they may all rest and be peaceful. Ea proposes that one of Tiamat's defeated warrior gods be used for the blood, and so Marduk asks the gods who caused Tiamat to rebel and instigate warfare. The gods respond that it was Kingu, and so they bring him forth, bound it up, and slay him. Kingu's blood is then mixed with clay from the earth, and with this mixture, Ea and his wife, the birth goddess, created humans. Ea doesn't want to make them exactly as the gods, but gives them many abilities and traits, but withholds immortality. On them, Marduk imposes labor, commanding that they serve the gods by their work in the fields and cities, and provide offerings and worship regularly. Our story comes to a grand finale and ends with Marduk being given 50 names by which he can be worshiped and reminding people that against Marduk, no one else can face him for he is the supreme ruler of the universe. Welcome to The Machine, everybody. I am your host, Mario, along with my co-hosts, Jeffro and Lee. Journey with us into conspiracy theories and the unexplained. Hello and welcome back, everybody. I am your host, Mario, along with Jeffro. Jeffro is remote still, but uh, we love him just the same. Jeffro, how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you guys all doing out there? Jeffro, we are talking about the Anunnaki. Uh, this is something we, you and I have talked about doing an episode on this. And we were just kind of like beating ourselves in the heads, thinking about how can we have a discussion like this on such a deep subject at the same time 
you know, uh, pull in the listeners and, and which, by the way, if you sat through that introduction, that was one hell of a long introduction. Maybe not so long, but still pretty long. Um, right, right. <laughs> but, but, but the information's there and uh, kudos to Spirit Science and everybody on that. They, we did not get the okay to use that. So, um, you know, what we discuss here doesn't necessarily depict the views of Spirit Science. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, but uh, speaking on, we, we, we always have this question, right? And we said this back in the creation podcast of, you know, there's that dying thirst to find out more about ourselves, our origins, right? I think everybody right. has that, you know, not only, not only the beginning, but the end, everybody wonders of the afterlife um, or death or, or, or anything like that. But we also, we have a yearning to understand who we are, where we come from and what we mean. So when we start hearing about uh, the Anunnaki and you and I had talked about the previous introduction to the Anunnaki about, you know, how far back do you go back? You know, when you go back to the beginning, as far as you, this is as far as we know, as far as humanity knows, this is the beginning. Right. And it almost seems like, it almost seems like a, a story out of a book. Does it not? Right. Yeah. And well, this is, this is as far back as we can go with written language. Um, right. As right. far as we know, uh, with some of the carbon dating, the carbon 14 dating with Gobekli Tepe, it goes back, you know, 10,400 years, but there's no written information at that site that we know of. So, yeah, as we know of, this is the oldest written language that we have access to. From the Mesopotamian era. era. Right, from the Mesopotamian. The uh, Mesopotamians were talking uh, in their different languages and different tablatures that we have found. They speak of these beings, the Anunnaki. Now, these beings come from a different planet. They were like the sky gods, right? Right. And depending on what what person you kind of study, um, there there's all kinds of different people that have looked into the subject matter. You have Anton Park, who's a French uh, researcher. You have uh, Zachary Sitchin, who, who's interpreted some of the um, Sumerian texts, and you have people like uh, Freddie Silva, who has a lot of information going back on this information. Um, you know, and these are a lot of the people that, you know, I, I've looked into and have gotten a lot of information from. Uh, you can say that they come from a plant named Nibiru. Some people talk about a planet possibly named Marduk. Uh, there's some information that overlaps with the Sumerians version of the creation story and the Babylonians who kind of you get the information from the Enuma Lish. Like in that in that intro, if you guys can recall back, um, there was two different types of beginnings. Uh, but what's interesting about both of them, the common denominator in both, regardless of how you want to interpret the information, was the creation, the, the, the actual source, right? Because they give different names to the same gods and some gods overlap and some don't. And, and, but what's interesting to me is the fact that 
the source is always water, right? In the Sumerian version of the creation story, it was the primordial mother goddess, Namu, right? That creates on and key. And then with the Enuma Lish, the primordial gods were Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu being the god of fresh water and Tiamat being the goddess of salt water. And it's just interesting to me, and this goes all the way back to the water podcast, that you reference all these different religions you reference all this different material we're using in this podcast the information that we have for the Anunnaki even in their teachings source is always water and mind you it's even the case in the Bible because even in the Bible in Genesis first line you know God in the beginning God's face flew across the surface of the waters so even before anything happens, uh, you know the, you know the I- idea of God in the Christian religion and the Jewish religion is reflecting off a surface of water, and, and a lot of times I'm sure if anybody's out there like me, they've always questioned the first couple lines there because it didn't make sense. You know, it, in the beginning, if God had not created the earth. In the heavens, you know, where did this water come from? Well, if, if you extrapolate this into a lot of these other teachings in the ancient world, well, either the beginning was God or there was a coexistence between God and water or God himself or herself was water. There, There's absolutely a connection here. Yeah, I think some some of the listeners may ask, well, you know, Mario, Jeffro, this is a podcast of conspiracies and the unexplained. What you're talking about is, you know, teetering religious. Well, at the same time, we're talking about gods uh, in reference to them being of beings, not from this planet. And how do you not talk about extraterrestrials in a, in a conspiracy theory podcast? Um, right. And the unexplained, obviously. I mean, let's talk about the unexplained. There, there have been so many sightings as of recent. You can make the argument that they are military technology. You can make the argument they are extraterrestrial technology. Either way, it definitely feels like um, something, something is happening. Something is changing. You know, uh, we are moving. Well, we are, we are within the age of Aquarius, are we not? age of knowledge well we are approaching the age of aquarius depending on what astrologers you Mm. talk to and and how certain people read the stars we're in that time frame some some astrologers actually believe that we crossed into the age of aquarius right around the time of 2012 and others believe there's a gap of a couple you know a couple hundred years um it all depends on uh the constellations and where you believe the horizon is whenever you cross into a certain you know um i'll say even this on a uh smaller scale than the stars with everything that has happened within the past year we're learning a lot about ourselves and the uh the planet the uh the different head figures 
in these different countries that uh, are supposed to be running things, we're learning a lot all around about all of these things. And it just, um, it seems surreal even from time to time. I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there, you know, everybody wants to get back to normal or whatever normal is or used to be. Um, Obviously we're living in times that are not what we would call quote unquote normal. Right. So I think, uh, I don't know. It definitely feels like something is maybe there's a new awakening about our surroundings. Maybe it's just a change. It definitely feels like nothing is ever going to go back to exactly the way it was because once you learn something you can't unlearn. Right. Right. And I, I think you're touching on something. Um, very important here. Um, I, I think if, if you come to the understanding that in the creation story of the Sumerians, it describes our species, at least in, in looking at in a, in a microscope in a vacuum here. Again, you know, no, uh, no, no accusation of whether or not this is true and this is, you know, a faith or whatever or not. But uh, the creation of our species was to be a slave species, right? Which is um, um, that's that's so. How do I want to say this? That's so eliminating to somebody, right? When when you when you think about these things, you think about who am I? What am I meant to be? And we're always told that we're more than. We realize, and, and I still believe that, um, but if you follow you know, this, it, uh, on the same level, if you, if you listen to the, uh, the intro, the beginning, the clip, um, we were created from the gods. If you're following you know, the ancient Sumerian text, we were created from the gods, right? Which means we have godlike powers. We have that in our DNA. Right. At the same time, we were created to pretty much be slaves and nobody wants to think of themselves. Hey, I was created just to be a slave, you know? Right. And where I was going with that narrative was this, like you said, it, it illuminates this, what seems to be an insatiable need to, imprison one another you know both consciously and physically right so it, it kind of the, the question people often ask when it comes to you know the elite right we we see this pattern constantly in history right you have an oppressor and you have a group of people that they oppress you know whether it's in shackles or or whether it's in taxes right right um it, it seems as though we have a predilection. Our species has a predilection to want to rule over and be subjugated, right? And, and it's interesting that that's what our original form was. And since then, it seems as though consciously we have not evolved from that point, meaning in the beginning. The second we were created, 
we should have started evolving from that point forward into history. And it seems as though we're stuck as a species in a rut, just spinning our tires where we still want to lure over other other people of our own kind. Um, like the song says, everybody wants to rule the world. Uh, right. At the same time, it also says, and to your point, in the Bible says we are born in the sin, does it not? Right. Well, we never, I'm, it seems like we're not growing out of it, right? You know, it also makes point that to say that those who do move on and do evolve, you know, those who are not born into wealth and, and these evil doings will be graced in the afterlife. Right. And, and you know, going back um, to some of the other podcasts where I talk about this reality of being a simulation. This right here is what I believe our assignment is. I, I believe if, if it's true that this is a simulation, that we're, that we're deposited in this reality to go ahead and learn something, right? Just like that flight simulator, you know, hypothesis. We are sent here to learn how to overcome wanting to control wanting to imprison, wanting to enslave people. To and truly that's, be free, you have to learn how to let go. Right. You know, and I, I believe that somehow, some way that that's the lesson we're sent here to learn. And that's until we can reach that point, we're going to keep repeating the simulation. There's a... Um, I don't know if you listen to much slam poetry, but a friend of mine sent this uh, slam poet to me named uh, Saul Williams. And he had a great uh, session, I guess you would call it, uh, at, at a Toronto festival. And he talks a lot about even though we believe we are free in today's day and age, and I'm just, I'm just, you know, summing this up real quickly, and he does a great job. Um, what he's basically saying is, we are not free. We're we're constantly enslaved because, you know, we're enslaving our own consciousness, right? No matter where we are, who we are, we think the slave masters were abolished in the 1800s, yet we still want to condemn each other today. Absolutely, and, and, I mean, you know. Yeah, we're we're more slaves now than ever, just in a different sense, in a different form, right? I'll say this: in order, to just survival, right? In order to survive, you show me one person who is excited to work forty hours a week, and that's just you know they're they're happy to go back and do that over and over and over again nobody's really excited i do it because it's a responsible thing to do and i do it because i you know i have to take care of my family um would it be nice to just not have to worry about finances not you know not be not have to worry about debt sure then i could have that time to have more time with my loved ones and uh, enjoy life a little more i'm not saying that you know that would be where all my time went 
but it definitely seems, I mean, especially through the week, I tell people at work all the time, I see you guys more than I do my family during the week. And how many right. days are in a week? Seven days. How many of those seven days do you spend at work? And I'm sure our listeners can listen to this and go, yeah, you know what? Some of us, you know, definitely five, six, sometimes seven, whoever, you know, if you don't realize that this is a modern day form of slavery and it's so no, absolutely, you know, and the comparison of, you know, always, always putting yourself another way of enslaving your mind is comparing yourself to other people, you know, sure. Social I need, media, absolutely. Right. Sure. I, I need a reliable, a reliable vehicle. I need a reliable transportation, you know, but the Jones just got a new Mustang GT. Oh man, that's really nice. I'd like to have that. They got a bigger house than me. I could really use that room. Look, they got two kids. I got four. And that's really right. damning to somebody's mentality. But right. that's the image that's put out there. In order to be happy, you have to have these things. And that's just not the case. Right. And, and that's exactly like some of our listeners might be listening to this and like, what? You guys are a little bit off subject. And, and no, I, I say, no, subject. we're not. Right. I, I don't think I don't think we're off subject at all. This this no. goes to you know where we come from. What's what's our beginning, and and that is to understand where we're going to go and to break free of those shackles. We have to understand what's going on, and it's it's very similar to that Stanford experiment. I believe it was in the seventies or eighties, where they had the students say, "Okay, so many students are going to be the prisoners. So many students are going to become the the guards," and the experiment was – I'm just going off memory here. The experiment was supposed to be a duration of you know, two, three, four weeks, something like that. And it ended up they had, a, they had to stop the experiment after just a couple of days because they found out that the guards had started abusing – you know, the, the students who were the guards started abusing their power right away. And again, that, that's – I believe that is what we have to evolve from. And one has to ask, why is that the case? Well, maybe it's because the progenitive origins of our species comes from that, that, that mindset of enslavement. So, you know, if, if we can understand where we came from, we can go ahead and evolve and become like our creators and that may have been you know the celestial game that was put ahead of us you know put in front of us and if that's the case you know we still got a long way to go well and i'll i'll go back again to uh, the biblical sense when we were talking about uh the different things there it even says that you know one of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not covet, right? Right. I, I and when I say that, it's tough because when I say that, I, I go back to um, and I think about George Carlin when he's talking about you know that's how that's what drives the economy. Well, yeah, it does, but that's also part of the systematic thinking of this is what you should do. This is how you should be. It's it is a form of slavery, slavery to the mind. 
it is hard. It is very, very hard, especially now more than ever with social media and everything that we have around us, not to find peace with what we are doing and to want more. And to your point, again, I honestly believe, and I, I, I do, that when, we, when we're learning about the Anunnaki and different teachings and, and separate things like that, maybe, maybe that was just implemented in a comparison. Maybe it was just implemented to keep us enslaved. Or maybe as a way to release us from the possibility of, you know, enslavery, knowing in the future, this could, you know, societies, because even the Mesopotamians, they, they had taxes, like you said, they had financial structure. It was a way of preparing ourselves and teaching ourselves that there is more to us to prefer to prepare ourselves into an afterlife and not to get, you know, off the Anunnaki subject or, you know, far away from that base. When we start talking about uh, the Anunnaki, I believe you said it was Sitchin who made the comparison of planets. So if you listen to the introduction of this podcast and they were talking about all these different figures and everything, he made the comparison that they're not really um, beings, that they're plants. It's the plants they're talking about. And I can't help but think of another, another people who did the same thing. Didn't we have this same sort of thing with Greek mythology? Did we not? I mean. Well, yeah, you know, they, they named their planets right. after gods. Right. So, and, and we'll get into a lot of the uh, the comparisons uh, religiously in, you know, we're, we're definitely going to do another episode on this. So we'll get into that in the next episode because it's going to get real deep and, uh, you know, we don't want to upset anybody or anything. But what is your take? Just going off of the introduction here, what is your take with this, this information? And it's not just, like I said, it, it sounds like a story, right? It sounds like something that you would read in a storybook novel. Sounds like, uh, I don't know, like a Game of Thrones type of thing, right? Right. Yeah, it does. It definitely sounds fictional, but at the same time, there is evidence to a lot of these things. So what do you make? Let me ask you personally, what do you make of this? Personally, I would say... We too often nowadays don't give enough credence to those who came before us with their interpretations. And, and I mean, even to today, we don't know how the Egyptians create, you know, the monoliths and, and the pyramids that they did. So um, I, I think it's a fool's tale that you're chasing if you don't give some credence to these stories I, I don't know i mean you can tell within their own faith or, or within their own lineage of you know the, the reading of these stories that they do change slightly even within themselves you know as they uh, go down through the ages you know first it was i believe it was the sumerians 
that were in Mesopotamia, then it was the Akkadians, then the Babylonians. I, I might be, I might be a little bit off with that, but it seems like from the Sumerian text to the Enuma Lish, it, it does change slightly. But that's why I brought up in the beginning there. What's what's most important to me is some of the names that continue on, and some of the initial. Uh, yeah, I think the Assyrians and the Chaldeans were also in there. Um, but it's like the same. The initial because, source, right, was water, and then the initial idea of the creation was for us to be of a uh, dominated sort of species. Right. But uh, I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to interrupt you, but uh, it, again, it's like, the, it's like the saying goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And this is something you and I have talked about in the past couple episodes when we talk about religion and, you know, this, this topic, the Anunnaki is beating the dogma of things because I get where I made the argument of you know, the, the different things that we find in the Bible to some of my religious friends and people that I know. And when you are so so full force in the faith which is I, i'm not condemning whatsoever that's fantastic but to me things can be changed i mean we see in catholicism all the time the catholics are always changing their beliefs but we see it all the time and i ask them i say you know why couldn't have this book been changed throughout the years well if it veered i always get the same answer uh, I have faith in my God. If it veered away from the word of the Lord, then, then it would never happen if, if it's not what God wanted. And I get it. You know, that's your faith. But at the same time, for me anyway, I have to take a step back and go, well, if that's the case, then why would there be, why, why would there be more than one version? Why would this, why would things be translated differently? And going back to when we were kids, I don't know if you remember the game telephone, you know, because cell phones didn't exist and I'm dating myself. Sorry, people. But when you give a message to, you know, you do the thing where you sit in a circle and you tell, you whisper something in one person's ear and by the time it comes back to you, it's completely different. Well, that was supposed to be used as, you know, a tool to show children how rumors can be hurtful and lost, right? Right. Why couldn't this apply here? Especially if you have power, uh, power hungry head figures in play to take it and say, well, that's not how I interpreted things. This is how I interpreted things. This is what me and my people believe. And this is what we're going to teach. And to me, that's what we have here. No, oh, absolutely, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna clarify a little bit off of what you said there. Um, this is information comes from uh, Greg Braden, and uh, he he kind of correlates exactly with what you're talking about here. And if I were to ask you, have you heard of the phrase "ask and ye shall receive"? I'm sure everybody's oh, heard sure. of that, correct? Sure. Okay, well, in the Nag Hammadi text, which was uh, discovered, I believe it was—I um, don't know if we brought that up or not—a um, 
I think it was either 1945 or 1845, but I think it was 1845, a couple of years before the Dead Sea Scrolls. When analyzing that text, I think it was uh, not. I'm not sure what verse in the Bible it was, but it it was translated, you know, into Greek and then into you know Roman or Italian or, or whatever, and through those iter- different iterations, you know, th- from Aramaic and, and whatnot, through those different iterations, what actually happened was that phrase got a little bit distorted, just slightly, just like what you're talking about, just something being distorted just slightly, and the meaning completely changes. This is, this is what that text or, or that section of the Bible was actually saying in its original form. It says, ask without hidden motive and be surrounded by your answer. Be enveloped by what you desire, that your gladness be full. Okay, and the reason why I bring that up is because if you think about the phrase, ask and ye shall receive, it takes away the power of the person who's praying because it's saying you're powerless. It's saying that you don't have something. And as a result of not having, having anything, you're just hoping that you can receive something. Whereas the way the phrase is originally written, it's asking or it's, it's stating to pray as if your answers or your prayer has already been fulfilled and be thankful for the prayer that it was fulfilled, right? So it gives you the power to go ahead and say, okay, instead of being a passive participant in the communication between you and your you know, superior other, you're now an active participant, right? Um, and, and another way of thinking of it is If and, and Greg Brennan does a much better job describing this than I am, but basically, if you're asking for something that you don't have, then nothing can be created from nothing, right? So if, if you're asking for a million dollars, you're stating right away that you don't have a million dollars, right? But if you say, thanks for the million dollars, then it's as if you become an active participant of trying to obtain that million dollars. And if you are in such a positive mindset, this, this sort of in a roundabout way goes towards the whole idea of, you know, the vision board and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and positive psych, you know, psychological therapy and whatnot, but it's just interesting, you know, at least to me, how, what you're talking about, you know, the Bible and different ancient texts, when they're translated into modern English, right, they sometimes lose their meaning just by not interpreting a certain word or phrase in the correct way. I think we lose ourselves in that a lot as well, because like you were just saying, you know, you're asking, you know, and when you start asking, you've already deemed yourself powerless, Right. Right. You've already put yourself, you know, at the submission of whomever you're asking these things for. 
And even further, instead of asking for something you know, non-materialistic, non something of real use, um, be it knowledge, be it, you know, wealth, and I don't mean that in a in a materialistic way. I mean that in a literal way, as far as your health. We get lost in these things, and we get lost in them because of the materialistic society that we live in, which pulls us down over and over again. But going back into the Anunnaki, we also hear of a possible return do we not well yeah uh with sitchin how he describes his interpretations is that uh this planet nibiru is a 3600 year it's a planet that's within our solar system or in a, in a solar system that uh, uh kind of rotates our sun at a 3600 year orbit Right. It's just in a, it's, so it's every, in a much more distant orbit than, you know, all the other planets in our solar system. Right. And it's interesting. Again, if you go back to our hypothesis of the simulation and, and you know, some sort of creation uh, here, you can you have this number thirty six hundred. If you reduce it, you come back to the nine, which is, again, the amount of times water is referenced in Genesis, you know, um, and Sitchin even talks about how he believed the Anunnaki reached planet Earth 450,000 years ago. Uh, and he talks about Nibiru being the ninth planet. So um, I, I, going back to what we were talking about, uh, yeah, Sitchin describes how Nibiru is in a 3,600-year orbit, and, you know, these Anunnaki, if that's the case, if that's their home planet, uh, he speculates that we're going to be reintroduced to these these possible beings, you know, every 3,600 years. Which, if you're following these timelines, it's we're not that far off. We're closer than ever. Right. Um, well, I'm not exactly sure exactly how long ago this number 36,000. Um, well, because the timeline begins to get, you know, like you and I were talking just a few minutes ago on the podcast. Um, it, it gets gray because we at some point we lose perception of our own time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, and again, it goes back to you know, what the Bible says, you know, that God will return and nobody will know when. Well, we could be the own, we, we, we could be byproduct of our own confusion of not knowing when. Maybe we, we were meant to know when. And I, I will say this in the new militia, I'm going to go back again to this number because, as we said in the past, we're not going to maybe force the idea of numerology on people. But it, it is interesting that in the new militia's version, uh, that Marduk, whenever he became ruler over Earth, that he placed 600 gods on the Earth and 300 gods in the sky. I think I, I find that very interesting. Again, coming across these numbers. 
Number nine again seems right. like such a sacred number. Right, even three and six. Um, you know, and they also talk about in that opening that the Anunnaki were led by twelve different leaders. So three six nine again. 12. Three, six, nine, twelve, exactly. Um, and going back to your your position with staying open, and, and I don't know if I exactly answered your question whenever you asked me what my my uh, belief was on all this. I would say I wouldn't dismiss it haphazardly, and I'd stay open to some of the information that's being presented. And I think if you have that sort of perspective, you just don't dismiss it and just say, okay, you know, place it in a box, put it on the shelf, right? Um, and let's accumulate information, let's accumulate stories, let's accumulate uh, pieces to the puzzle and at some point step back and, and look to see if there's any combining thread through all these different stories because you know as we closed with the last podcast i was trying to bring some comparisons to how the anunnaki had been spoken of not just in the sumerian text but all kinds of texts right i mean they they were mentioned in india they were mentioned uh in ancient egypt they were mentioned in uh, south america they were also mentioned you know, in the Southwest um, with the Hopi Indians. So they all go by a similar name of the Shining Ones or, you know, the Adamu or the Anunnaki or the Adamu, which is uh, similar to, you know, Adam. And what's another thing that's very interesting about these play on words is they're very, very close, very, very um similar pronunciation um adam or adam in sumerian is red right and the hopi talked about the red ant people that saved them during the last cataclysm by taking them into middle earth and then re-emerging after the cataclysm was over and one would say man you, you guys are kind of drawing strings from everywhere and and that's how hypotheses work right you, you accumulate a bunch of information and you step back and you see if things are kind of connecting and there's not a maybe not a direct line right but just like a detective you have all these different sources of information you draw strings right well this string goes here and that string goes there and if you're you kinda, on a beach with a metal detector and it starts beeping you're gonna dig Right, exactly. And what I find extremely interesting is um, this goes to Mr. Silva's work. He, he references the skulls that the Paracas skulls that were found in Peru. And if I don't know if we've really gotten onto that subject matter quite yet, but uh, you know, down there in the Nazca lines and things like that, there's a near the Nazca lines, there's a uh, burial site that they call Paracas and they found elongated skulls which if you look at some of these um, you look at some of these ancient 
images of, of these Anunnaki, they always seem to have elongated skulls. Right. Right. And what's interesting about these elongated skulls is not only do they not have a suture or a sagittal suture, which is a suture that goes from the forehead to the back. They just have the one that goes from ear to ear. I'm not sure what suture that is called, but people have often said that that is from binding. Well, it can't be from binding because if it was a human skull, it would have that sagittal suture from the middle of the forehead back, and it doesn't have that one. And these skulls are super long. And, and the capacity within the skull is much more volume than a regular human skull. So you can't – even if you were to bind a human skull to make that shape, you couldn't increase the volume. You could just you know, move it, change the shape. Right, exactly. But the other thing, the one the last thing I want to bring up on that is what's interesting is with those skulls, many of those skulls still have hair remaining. On the scalp. And one guess what color that hair is. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't know that. I'm okay. The hair is my red. Attention. It's red. The hair is red. Well, then Absolutely. they're soulless. We all know redheads don't have souls. That's a joke. <laughs> what's interesting is, get upset. <laughs> what's interesting is red hair actually, in the genealogically going back in the human genome project, actually originates from Mesopotamia, not Ireland. What the fuck are you telling me? <laughs> um, there's even, I mean, we're going off subject here, but there's even some uh, researchers that claim that Mary's Mary's mother, Jesus's grandmother, was actually from Ireland. Oh, you don't which say. which is might be why you see some of the depictions of Jesus actually having like a strawberry blonde, reddish hair color, right? That is interesting. So I don't wow. know. We're, we're we're jumping around a lot here, but you know, some people say that these Anunnaki uh, reincarnate, right? And possibly, I mean, depending on, you know, we'll get to the religion side of it later. But you know, um, these cycles that we talk about with the Anunnaki, it seems as though a uh, a teacher reemerges, and it seems as though they reemerge similarly to this 3600 year cycle which coincides with some of these religious religious texts and which coincides with the fact that maybe they don't actually incarnate physically but spiritually almost as if they were embodying spiritually a human body as if maybe there was some sort of transmutation or or uh, transmuted or <laughs> I'm getting deep now um, some sort of uh, teleportation of the consciousness sort of like maybe what Dr. Montagnier kind of looked into okay. with the uh, teleportation of uh, water and the DNA code. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm piecing things too much together. No, but that's what that's what we do here. That's what this podcast is about. It's uh, you know, conspiracies, theories, and the unexplained. Well, 
I, again, I always say critical thinking and it doesn't just come from nowhere. We're not just, uh, we're not saying, Hey, this is why we think there's a spaghetti God, but we're pulling information, factual information, and we're reading into the hypothesis and the comparisons within that information. So if people, and this is another thing, like I said to you in the last episode, you know, this is, these tablets were found, what, in the 1800s, I believe it was? Which tablets? The Sumerian tablets? The Sumerian tablets, yes. I believe it was 1845, if I'm correct. Okay. Well, I go back to saying this information is, we're not learning. 1847, our, sorry. 1847. I, I no, nah, I believe you were correct. I think it was 45. I'd have to go back and look. But anyway, either way, either way, we're not teaching this. Why? No, we're not teaching this. Why? 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 I mean, we're teaching Greek mythology. I learned about Greek mythology in school. Did you? Yeah, well, Greek mythology was actually a yeah, absolutely. They talked they talked about Greek mythology. I learned about Darwinism and evolution. Did you? Uh, well, yeah, I was taught wrong about Darwinism too. Why? I mean, what, why, why is this information not being taught? It almost I seems don't know. like they don't want people to know this information. No, they don't. They, they you know. Again, you, you know, every realize, time you hit the Darwin, right. Every time you hit the Darwinism, you know, this comment, it, it bothers me because, you know, even he was misquoted. And as he was misquoted, it was taken off. You know, the subject matter was taken off. And you know, again, it, it correlates to the ability for a certain segment of the population to impose their will on a segment of the population. You know, the whole idea of, you know, survival of the fittest. And, you know, he was basically talking about, you know, survival actually was of the species that were able to cooperate, you know, through cooperation. Um, right. More so. It's just I, I think un- a unbelievable. Science, scientific term ad- adaptation, right? Adaptation. Right. And it, it's just this, you know, that again goes back to your whole idea of, you know, manipulation, right? right. Manipulation of the text, manipulation, teaching, you know, you know, what well, we're going to get, we're going to get into uh, different interpretations and manipulation, especially uh, between the Anunnaki and religion and different religions, not just uh, any specific religion. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we're going to get into that into the next episode. And again, you know, these these are theories. These are comparisons made. They, we're not. We, we don't mean to demonize anybody's beliefs. That's not what we're trying to do. So I want to make that clear. And I know I'm going to do it again because it is such a touchy subject. Uh, but I did have uh, I did have some listeners reach out to me on the uh, on the website and the app. So thank you again for all of that, uh, Lee. Lee, I got to get you your T-shirt out, buddy. I haven't sent it out yet, but I will make sure I do that this week. Um, Lee was asking a little more of the CE5 stuff we were doing. 
we covered the topic of the CE5 and we made comments that we were going to get into the field of this. That's still the plan. We are still planning on doing this. So um, keep listening. We're hoping to do it be, but before summer's end, maybe it may even go into the fall, depending on how our schedules line up. Um, we also want to get into the, uh, uh, what, what is the, I mean, I'm excited to do that. The, uh, the float pods, right? You float know, we're tanks, talking yeah. float tanks. Oh, so excited to do that. we got to get into that. We'd actually like to do that before we go out into the field, uh, to do a little more CE5 stuff. So if anybody out there has had, uh, any type of connection or, or tried the CE5 stuff, please contact us. Let us know what your experience was. And or if you plan to do it again, let us know. Maybe we'll have you on. And again, uh, another plan. Roberta reached out to us again. We would love to have her back on. That is the plan. We plan on having Roberta back on. And uh, we want to leave the listeners with a clip, uh, another spear science clip. And I know it's they, they tell this story of the Anunnaki so well. Do they not, Jeffro? They do. They do, they do it so well. And building into the next episode of the comparisons, I think we want to leave them with this clip. What do you think? Yeah, go ahead. It sounds good. Do you have anything you want to add before we go into this clip and end the podcast? Uh, well, I, I would like to say one thing, you know, and this, this goes off the, the religious sort of thing too. Um, what's interesting is uh Whenever you look into the Bible, they've got a lot of different interesting passages. And again, I, I think I truly believe uh, the beginning of Genesis there, at least with that being, you know, the book that I'm, I'm most familiar with. You know, I'm not f- super familiar with the Quran or, or you know, the uh, Torah, but I, I believe it's like a key. I believe it's like a legend to the map of our consciousness, our, our soul, right? Our soul's journey. And those keys and those cues of, you know, those sacred numbers, three, six, nine, 12. I, I believe the Bible has a lot of interesting, interesting um, tidbits in there. If, if you're really looking And one of my favorite verses that I've looked into is Psalms 82. And, and I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll leave it with this. Um, just in, as of the things that we have been talking about, about how our consciousness needs to evolve and move away from this lower vibration of imprisonment and domination and oppression, you know, we have the ability, like you were talking about, we have, we are so much more capable than what we're, what we tell our children, what we tell our friends, what we tell our communities. And, and Psalm 80, 82 is very interesting. Uh, it's only eight quick sentences or eight verses. And it starts with this. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods, plural gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Saliah, which interesting Saliah, real quick, is also a term in Egypt that references Orion's belt. And Orion's belt and many of the teachings of the Anunnaki talk about how Orion is where the Anunnaki originate from. Okay. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. 
deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They not they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All of the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. So, you know, it's it's almost as if there, in my interpretation of this, in a microcosm, and just you know, just looking at that, it's telling us we will be led astray if we don't come to the realization that we are gods, and we it implores us that we are gods of the most high and we are children of the most high. And we have to take this to heart. We have to stop doing these evil things that we're doing. And this goes all the way to everything we've talked about with the media and everybody else, you know, the, the elite constantly oppressing us. We are more. And I, I think in the last, you know, s- you know, season of this, we, we keep coming across this, message we are more than what we are told we are not mistakes we are powerful you out there listeners you are powerful and we have to believe that and accept it and once we can accept that we can evolve so agree more very well said my friend very very well said um before before we get into the ending clip here, I would also like to make uh, something I just reminded myself. Um, a good example of what I was talking about, how books, uh, religious texts and whatnot are changed is the book of Enoch, right? And you and I have talked about the book of Thomas as well. Right. Just, just yeah. to keep those things in mind, you know, hey, you, these things can be changed and they can be uh, manipulated. And, or uh, completely omitted, as right, in the book right. of Enoch and the book of Thomas. Right, and and you have to wonder why. You have to wonder why. Um, Absolutely. But that being said, Jeffro, we're going to end it here. We will talk to you guys, um, continuing the series and making the comparisons even deeper, which is going to be quite staggering again. But it's information nonetheless, and we feel everybody deserves to know and hear and listen and you know, make up your own mind. We're not telling you what to think. Do yep, absolutely. Do you, boo-boo? You gotta do it. <laughs> so on that note, Jeffro, stick around, everyone. The clip is coming up. It is a short clip, but until then. Until then, Mario. Now. The story we just looked at is written down in exceptional detail in a series of tablets called the Enuma Elish of which several main translations are available online for anyone out there who is curious to read them. The story begins in a very similar way to the Sumerian edition that we discussed prior with Namu. However, the Enuma Elish expands upon it further, taking the story into one of a terrifying battle and the rise of a new, very strong masculine power. Throughout history, this story gained prominence in Babylon. And as we heard in the story itself, is used to explain how Babylon came to be. Eventually, this story even influenced the creation of the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, 
Hold up, there is no way that there's this epic battle in the Bible. However, in Psalms 74, in the midst of God ordering the sea and the dry land, establishing the sun, the moon, the stars, and the seasons, he's also destroying sea monsters. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan, and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Da-da! Sure enough, fighting sea dragons, right there in the Bible. We can also see a rather curious correlation to the Bible by the fact that Marduk is given 50 holy names, many of which follow a similar naming convention by the names of God found in the Bible. For example, where in Hebrew it goes Yahweh, and then Yahweh Jireh, Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh Nisi, and so on, Marduk's 50 names also give him a title, and then continue to expand upon it several times before repeating this pattern with another title, such as Tutu, Tutu Ziokina, Tutu Ziku, Tutu Agaku, and so on. Ultimately, the question remains, what does it all mean? And what does it have to do with us? Why do we care? Now, previously we looked at the various possible interpretations of the title gods as either planets, people, or forces of nature. When looking into the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian records, the honest truth is that today, we don't really understand exactly what they were referring to, although there are some popular theories about it. To most in the academic world, this story is an allegory for the formation of the universe from the primordial substance of creation. It is seen as a triumph of order over chaos and light over darkness. It has been observed as a parable of the rise of Babylon in Babylonian culture over the older Sumerian model of civilization. Further, this tale can be understood as an illustration of the concept of life as perpetual change. In this myth, the old static gods in the story are replaced by the younger, more dynamic gods who then introduced the concept of change and mutability to the universe through the creation of mortal beings who are subject to death. These creatures are tasked with helping the gods maintain their creation. And so, although they themselves are not eternal, they play an integral role in the work of the gods. In a lecture that he did, Jordan Peterson describes that the story truly explains original sin in a different form than we're familiar with, because humans are created from the blood of the slain Kingu, who was the chief warrior for Tiamat, representing primordial chaos and a force of powerful evil. Because of this, humans have the capacity for evil, and this story was one of the ways that early humanity made sense of this. And personally, we also see a huge correlation between this story and the Kabbalistic tree of life. In the beginning, there was Apsu and Tiamat, who, if we correlate the stories together, emerged from Namu. Then we have the creation of six deities in pairs of two, which creates these paired opposites along the left and right side of the tree, bringing us to the bottom. In the resulting struggle for the rulership and harmonization of the entire tree, or the totality of creation, Marduk wins, creating the center of Tiferet. Further, there are a number of other ways we could position these characters in relationship to the tree, such as putting Apsu at the top and Tiamat at the bottom, since she is the earth after all, and all of the other gods being created between them. This is of course just a curious musing of ours, but a very interesting correlation nonetheless. Now, this may very well be the end of the story, 
that these ancient myths are steeped in metaphors and ideas which reflect human consciousness. And that's that. However, in the last 50 years or so, a different idea about what the story meant came to light. This new telling suggested that in fact, the story was a bit of a secret code, a story with clues alluding to something that really happened in history. This story has planetary collisions, alien spacemen, and so much more. When this telling came out, it became one of the first times that the world truly took an interest in these tablets. And this story only came about because a young boy became obsessed with a burning question.